0: Well, good morning. It's Good to be with you here this morning. I have a picture I want to show you. If you were here in the first week of the series, you might uh, recognize this. Uh, in the first week of this series in Ephesians, we're calling in Christ. I came out on stage and I was wearing this shirt. And uh, this shirt was a sort of a symbol of our lives. Uh, a lot of times we walk around, though not, it's not going to be out there for everybody to see, but we carry it with us, these lies that we believe about ourselves. Things like, I'm not good enough, I'm unloved, I'm a failure, I'm boring, I'm pathetic, and throughout life, we live with these lies. We tell ourselves these lies about ourselves, and it affects us. And what we've been learning, if you haven't been with us uh, in this series in Ephesians, is that uh, once we're placed in a relationship with Christ, uh, we are given a a new life. In fact, if you're following on your notes, once we are placed in Christ, we are given a new identity, a whole new identity, and so I took off that shirt, and I had this second shirt underneath, which tells us some of the things we've been learning about our identity, right? We're living heirs. We're adopted. We're loved. We're redeemed. We're forgiven. That is who God says we are when we are placed in a relationship with Christ. And if you weren't here last week, you missed a great message by Pastor Brian from Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, where we learned that we have gone not just to given a new identity, but we've been given life. We've gone from death to life. We've gone from bondage, from slavery, to those things that have us by the throat in life. We've gone to freedom. We've gone to a place where we can overcome those things with the power of God's help. Best of all, we've gone from condemnation object of God's wrath to living heirs sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. This has all been incredible stuff. I hope if you have been a part of this series, it's been encouraging to your soul. Has it been encouraging to you to learn uh, the amazing gifts that God has given us? But I, I want to step back a moment this morning. I want to ask a little different kind of a question. We've been talking a lot about who we are in Christ. But if you're following on your notes, here's the question. But how is a person given this new identity in Christ? In other words, we've talked a lot about what happens when we are placed in Christ and who we are once that happens, but how does that actually happen? Maybe to put it more simply, how does a person become a Christian? How is a person saved from all those things we learned about ourselves last week before we are in relationship with Christ? How do you move from death to life, from slavery to freedom? Well, in the verses we're I'm going to be looking at together this morning in Ephesians two eight and nine we are given the most in my opinion the most definitive answer to that question in all of Scripture I know for many of you these are familiar verses uh, but I, I would say this is the clearest presentation of what we call the gospel in the Bible and I just want us to suspend what we know about these verses for a moment and live in the tension of that question Let me even back it up a little bit more instead of just focusing on Christ how how does a person come to know God how does a person come to know God you may or may not know but human beings have been asking this question for a long time And essentially, uh, there have been two answers given to the question of how a person comes to know God. We've been learning about these uh, as uh, pastors lately and in some uh, coaching stuff we're doing. And I thought it was very helpful. So on your notes there, I have a couple of boxes that are empty for you. And if you want to fill this in, this was really helpful for me. But there's two answers to that question how a person comes to God. I know that may sound like I'm narrowing down a lot of human history, but it's true. When you really, look at it, essentially there become two answers to that question of how a person comes to God. Number one, in that first box there, the answer that is given is we come to God by doing something, whatever you want to call it, I've called it good works. We do good works. We are obedient. We do moral things, right? We start doing all of these good works, and as we do that, it gives us an identity, And what is the identity we are hoping to get by doing all of those good works? We want to be known as a good person. Because if my identity is as a good person, then God has to notice me. God has to look down from heaven. I mean, again, the question is, how does a person come to know God? Well, if I become a good person through good works, God notices me. That's how you come to God. Now, of course, we're going to have to define what good works are. Different religions define it differently. But I'm here to tell you, this is the answer that almost every religion gives to the question of how a person comes to God. If you're followed on your notes, I put it this way. I earn my salvation through good works. I've said it before, I'll say it again. This is what I believe for most of my early life. Even though I called myself a Christian, I I knew all the right things. Practically speaking, the way that actually played out in how I lived out my Christian life is that I tried to find my identity by doing all the right things, all the good things, in hopes that God would look down on my life and declare me to be, you're good enough. You're good enough to come to me. And like I said, that answer, if you boil it down, is the answer almost every religion gives. But the second answer to that question is stated in the verses we're looking at this morning. And like I said, this answer is called the gospel. And this answer is basically the complete opposite of what the first one teaches. Can we read the gospel out loud together on our notes there in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? It says... For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So how do you illustrate that? Well, it's really simple. What that is saying is that God is the one. God is the one who initiates the entire process of how we come to know him. And what we have been learning in this series is God is the one who places us in Christ. And when we are placed in Christ, we are given a brand new identity. And we have been learning some amazing things about that identity, haven't we? We are chosen, we are loved, we are redeemed, we are adopted. That is who I now become once I am placed in Christ. And the natural result of that identity is good works. A life of obedience. A life that is just naturally going to flow uh, in obedience. If you're following on your notes, number two, I put it this way. I receive salvation by grace through faith. Those are your two options. And I want you to understand more than anything else this morning, they are diametrically opposed to one another. They have nothing to do with each other. In this option, God is the one who initiates our salvation entirely. We did nothing. God is the one who has given you a new identity in Jesus Christ. You didn't earn it. And it is out of that identity. That we pursue good works. Friends, chaos starts to happen when we get the order reversed, doesn't it? In fact, Paul is very clear. I mean, let's first address this the end of verse 9. He says, salvation is not by works. So that no one can boast. According to these verses, if you live believing answer number one is how you will be saved. You've entirely missed the gospel. You've missed it. Now, when you hear the word works, when you read about that in Paul's writing, uh, I don't know what comes to your mind. Sometimes Paul is referring to the works of the Jewish law, specifically, if you were here when we did our series in Galatians, that's almost certainly what he was referring to, right? People were adding to the gospel. They were saying, you're saved by Jesus plus good works, these Jewish works of the law. However, in Scripture, it also has a much bigger meaning, and that's the the case in this text this morning. If you're following on your notes, works here refers to any activity we perform to gain God's favor. Any activity in your life that you perform to gain God's favor. Can you think of any? How about what we're doing right now, this morning, gathering together to worship at church? Can that be a work in the term that I just defined it that way? Can it? It can absolutely be a work depending on the motivation for why I am here to worship this morning. If my motivation is coming to church is a good work, which I want to be a good person and good people go to church, so that I'll go to church so I'm a good person so then God will notice me, then it's works. It's performing. You're just here to perform the perfunctuary. I do this every Sunday. It's a work. If, however, your motivation is here because you want to fellowship with God's people, you want to worship the Lord God Almighty, it ceases being a work. It's an act of love. It's an act of desire. When it comes to salvation, friends, you have to understand in Scripture one thing is clear. Works, in the way we define it, and grace are diametrically opposed to one another. Paul put it pretty bluntly in Romans 11, verse 6. If it's by grace, if we're saved by grace, if we come to God by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Grace would no longer be grace. The problem today is that this goes completely against the notions of our culture. I'll just say it right now. You live, I live in a works based culture. We live in works-based culture, don't we? Friends, people who don't even believe in God operate under a works-based mentality. They do. They, it just depends on how we define salvation today, right? We're defining salvation one way. Today, we have redefined in our culture what salvation is. I think for a lot of people, salvation is economic freedom, When I'm economically free to live in luxury and to retire however I want, then I will be saved. Of course, they won't use that language, but that's the goal, right? Or we think of salvation in terms of status. As long as I reach the top of whatever company it is I'm in, or as long as I'm seen by others, in this particular way, I've reached salvation. If you're following on your notes, works-based systems define salvation today as success. When we are successful then we think we got it we've reached the mountaintop i'll be happy finally but if you've ever gone after success have you noticed how frustrating it is cuz it always just seems one more grasp away i'm almost I, th- I think i'm there oh no they're a little bit more successful than me so i keep going It's elusive so i run harder I try more. I make more money. I've been thinking a lot about this as a parent, and I resonate with John Ortberg, who said, we overschedule our kids with sports, classes, private lessons, and personal tutors because we want them to be accepted to the best schools so they can get the best jobs and get the best 401Ks. We think if our kids are not the smartest and the best, then we are not successful. But what does that all teach our kids It teaches them that success is defined by performance because that's what we're taught. That's what we live in. And how, as the church, can we not look at that and say, this is bleeding into our understanding of God. This has bled into my, I'm saying this personally, into my understanding of how I come to know God. I begin to base my identity on how successful I am in religious things. Becoming a good person becomes my goal because that is what will give me an identity that's worthwhile. Now, if you don't believe me, take it from the guy who wrote these words in Ephesians and in the book right after Ephesians, Philippians chapter 3, Paul basically says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, in other words, if you're going after triangle number one there, I have more. I'm the best at triangle number one. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, what does he say? Faultless. He is the cream of the crop. He's as close as it can get to someone coming to God based on good works. And yet he concludes by saying, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul lived his whole life as a guy performing for God, performing for God. He was as good as it gets, and yet like so many people today who are still living under that tyranny, it still left him empty, right? He needed more. All of his success in the religious life, all of his earning still left him empty. And I'll tell you a little secret. There are still people today in this room, in our community, in this city who are living under that tyranny and are not experiencing the joy of salvation that Jesus came to bring. I'll tell you it was true for me. I was robbed of joy for years in my relationship with Christ. And i got to be honest with you, this still rears its ugly head in my life sometimes. I still begin to inch towards defining my identity based on how good I'm being, hoping God will notice me. Here I am, here we are as human beings, thousands of years after Jesus, letting the world tell us what success is. Why? Why are we so drawn to works-based salvation systems if they always leave us empty? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why are we drawn to that? I've asked this question a lot in my life because I struggle with it a lot. And I've basically come to two conclusions about this. You might disagree, but I put it this way. We're drawn to it because it allows us to control and compare We love works-based systems of righteousness because I get to be in control at that point, right? I get to do good works. I get to control it. In many ways, works-based righteousness systems puts us in power over God. Think about it. God, if I do all these things you've told me to do, then you are now obligated to do these things for me in return. I'm in control. So if I do enough good, I've got God under the right where I want him. That's crazy. Now, the question is, how do I know I'm doing enough good? I just look at you. I'm gooder than you. I'm gooder than her. I'm gooder than him. I know that's not right English, but you get the point. Don't we do that? I know how successful I am, religiously speaking, when I compare myself to others. This is exactly what the Pharisee in Luke 18 was praying, right? He prayed. He stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. You know, I've never prayed that, but I've thought it. But the question I never asked myself early in my life, and I don't think many people ask themselves today, is what makes a good person good? Sure, I mean, if I measure my goodness compared to someone else's, I'm probably good. But if I measure my goodness to the standard of God's radical, holy righteousness, which the Bible tells us is our standard, then I pale in comparison. I don't think I need to convince any of you in this room that we can't attain perfection no matter how successful we are. Even my very best good works are colored by sin and can never approach the radical righteousness which God demands. I, I, I mean, because I pre- was going to preach on this, I was thinking about this this very week. I wanted to give a, a sum of money to, a, to an organization, right? And there was, I, I did, and there was something inside of me that wanted somebody to know. God, I just told all of you, so I ruined it, right? Like, <laughs> but there's some taintedness there. And I wanted God to see, to make sure he noticed. I, want, I wanted other people to see, wow. That's pretty generous of him. What a wretched man I am, as Paul says. What a wretched man I am. But then Jesus comes onto the scene. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, God represented perfectly. He starts his whole ministry with these words Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Who are the poor in spirit? <laughs> That's me. It's anybody who realizes that within themselves they have nothing to commend themselves to God. Nothing. It is those who realize, I'll never be successful enough to meet his standards. And Jesus says, when you come to that realization that you'll never be enough, you are closer to the kingdom of God than any good work ever got you before. You see, coming to a relationship with Christ isn't based on what you do for God. It is based on God's grace. What's God's grace? If you're following on your notes, the basic definition used for hundreds of years is that it is unmerited favor, unearned favor, undeserved favor, whatever word you want, given as a gift, freely given as a gift. It is a joyous, lavish word. The ancient Greeks I studied this week, I learned that when they would use the word grace, and, you know, the New Testament is written in Greek, so when they would use this word, it was describing when a strong person helped someone who was weak, needy, or dependent. In other words, a weak person who couldn't do something on their own was helped by grace from somebody who could help them do it. That's grace. Same for us. God chooses to love us, to forgive us, to accept us, to embrace us, and help us. When we couldn't do it on our own. When all the good works in all the world couldn't accomplish what he could. I believe if grace would come right to this room this morning, it would say to us, stop. Stop. You don't have to be any more successful than you already are. You don't have to win any more than you've already won. You don't have to be any more talented. You don't have to look any better. You are already loved. How? By my grace. By grace. If you're falling on your notes, the message of grace is stop trying to be good enough. Because all you're trying will never be enough. We've talked a lot about grace, and I was thinking about how how can I illustrate the difference between those two triangles? How can I illustrate the difference between grace and a workspace? Righteousness. And so I I was thinking about this. What I have here is a vase. And I want you to think about this vase as you. We're told in Genesis that in the beginning God created us, male and female, in the image of God, and he declared us to be good. We were created with a purpose to be light of the glory of God, to be filled with the glory of God, to be in direct fellowship and relationship with God. We were created, and it was good. And yet we're told that our first parents, Adam and Eve, took this good thing. They were radically righteous, created in God's image. They took this great thing that God has given us, and they threw it all away by disobeying God's law. And so the answer to this problem we now have for human beings for thousands of years is here's what we do. If I just do enough good works, if I just get enough glue, I can eventually piece the life of my back, my life back together again, right? I can make something worthwhile out of this. I just need to be a good enough person and we finally come to it and here's what we get. i got to tell you a true story. Chuck is the one uh, who actually glued this together. It took him two days. <laughs> he used four different types of glue. I mean, I just think this is so cool. I mean, he, he, he just said to me, and he looked at it after and said, that's pretty good. Isn't that what we do? It takes our whole life. Lots of good works. Lots of religious activities. I'm better than that vase, at least. I compare it to others. That's pretty good. I'm pretty good. Now, let me ask you something. Is this vase worthless? No. But is it worthless in in the same way as human beings and we're fallen? We're not worthless. We're created in God's image. And yet... For its intended purpose, is this vase worthless? You think this sucker's holding water? (laughs) And it's the same for us as human beings, right? We're not worthless. And yet for our intended purpose, to be in intimate communion with a radically righteous God, we're broken. So what? What happens? What do we do? We try and we try and we try and we try and none of it ever works. But the gospel that we are learning about this morning tells us that by grace, by grace, God gives us a whole new life. Now listen, I really want you to understand this because this is where so many people misunderstand what Jesus actually did. Jesus didn't come to earth to live a life, to die on a cross, to be resurrected from the dead, just so he could fix you. Just so he could glue you back together again. Just so he could remake you. What he wanted to do was give you a whole new life, better than the one we could have ever had before. And we are told in Scripture that is exactly what he did. It's the gospel. If you're falling on your notes there, I think I put it this way. Jesus didn't come to fix us. He came to make us new. There was a religious man by the name of Nicodemus who once came to Jesus at night because I don't think he wanted other people to know he was talking to Jesus. And he asked Jesus the question we're asking this morning, how does a person come to know God? And Jesus' answer in John 3.3, let's read it out loud together up here on the screen. He says, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. In other words, all the glue in the world ain't putting Humpty back together again. You need a whole new life, and I have come that you might have life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's what we're learning about, the new creation has come. The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And this new is better than anything we could ever manufacture on our own. Amen? It is nothing less than the very nature of the eternal holy god placed within his people christ in us the hope of glory that is the message of grace how do you receive it by grace all by grace what did you do to deserve it did you finally do enough to earn it does god expect something now in return from you Why did God give us this new life in Christ? If you're following on your notes, it's because God poured out his grace simply because it pleased him to do so. The word Paul used is, it's a gift. It's a gift. It just pleased him to do it. He doesn't expect anything. He didn't do it because you did anything for him. Grace would say to many of you in this room today, you've already been accepted, forgiven, and loved. No matter who you have been in the past or what you have done, you can be given a new life in Christ. Just stop trying. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trusting in your own works, your own accomplishments. Worst of all, stop trusting in yourself, which is the root of all sin. Humble yourself and receive God's gift of grace like a gift, the gift that it is. Now, the question is, how do I receive this gift of grace? How do I get the new vase, the life? The answer, according to our text, is through faith. Or if you're following, we receive God's grace through faith. Now, wait just a minute. I've had people say this. Stop right there. You've been speaking about the grace of God and salvation, how it's all a gift. And I'll admit, I can't put all the pieces of my life back together. There is some brokenness inside of me. I can't reach God's standard of perfection. But now you're telling me I have to do something in order to get it. I knew there was a catch. Isn't faith just a religious way of saying works? Aren't you just trying to, like... Cover that. Get, get this in there, don't we all eventually go back to system number one, to triangle number one? I guess my response to that question is always, is receiving a gift a work for you? Is that work? All I do to receive a gift from someone is open up my hands. My hands just become the channel at that point from which I can receive the gift that somebody is wanting to give me. In the same way, faith is simply the channel by which God's grace comes to me. In fact, according to this text, if you were to look at it closely, like I have this week in Greek, the point that we are told here is that all of salvation is God's gift to us. In the Greek, both grace and faith are God's gift. Both of them are God's Mm -hmm. gift. Faith is not a work. Faith is receiving a gift. What does that look like? What is true faith? Today, the most common understanding of faith is that it's some sort of subjective feeling I have. It's a feeling I have. For example, a lot of people might say things like, I am a spiritual person. I have faith in faith. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Like, what? You believe in belief? Deep down, I believe in God. You know what that is more like? That's more like the power of positive thinking. Somebody wrote a book about that, didn't they? Belief. Subjective feelings. But the Bible tells us that faith looks different. According to the Bible, true faith really has three elements to it. People have worded this differently throughout the years. I put it this way. If you're on your notes, true faith is knowledge plus surrender plus commitment. Knowledge plus surrender plus commitment. Knowledge must be the first thing because it's impossible to believe in something unless we know what we are believing. Remember Jeff's sermon on Easter, friends? Paul prayed that the Ephesians would know the hope to which they called. And we talked about how in the biblical language, knowing isn't just knowing about something. It is knowing something intimately. And that's the point. We can't just know about all this stuff. We've got to know the person. We've got to know Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. Knowing the right stuff is important. Paul says, guard your doctrine closely. But when it comes to knowing our salvation, we got to know a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. But knowing isn't enough. We're told, number two, there also must be surrender. Or if you like the word trust, you can write that there. Faith isn't just intellectually believing certain things, it's also responding to that. Knowledge is recognizing God is wanting to give me a gift. Surrender is opening up my hands to receive that gift. But faith includes a third element, which is commitment. How often do you read in the Gospels when Jesus... When he calls people to himself to be his disciples, tells them, count the cost. Count the cost of what it's going to take, because it's going to take your whole life. It's going to take being committed to me, to the, and again, the best example we've, I've, I've seen in this, I've shown this clip before. I'm not going to show the clip this time, but you remember in Indiana Jones, the last one there, he's trying to save his father's life. He comes to this big chasm, right? And he's got this journal, and he knows there should be a bridge there. Knows? Knowledge? He knows it. It says it. He's done all the research. He's studied it. He knows the truth. There should be a bridge there, but he can't see a bridge. So he has to come to this conclusion of surrender. I'm going to surrender to the unknown here, and I'm going to step out onto this bridge. And then he has to commit and actually do it. That's faith. Knowing, surrendering, Committing. It's why we ask the three questions we do every time we baptize someone in this church. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? You got to believe He is who He says He is. Have you received Him as your own Savior over sin and death? Have you surrendered to the idea that your good works is what's going to save you? Have you surrendered to His death on the cross that He took the place for you? And thirdly, Are you willing to let him be the Lord of your life from this day forward? Are you committed? Because, friends, the truth is belief plus surrender as well as commitment always leads to obedience. If you're walking around for 5, 10 years saying, I've received God's grace, I have true faith, but nothing actually is happening in your character, in your life, then you're kidding yourself. Grace, check this out, we're going to come full circle this morning, Grace, if it's really there, leads to faith. And faith, if it is true, always leads to what? Hint, it's on the board. Good works. Just don't get that order mixed up. Grace leads to faith, leads to good works, not the other way around. If you're falling on your notes there, living good lives is the result of our salvation, not cause. Next week, Pastor Jess is going to talk about Ephesians 2.10, where it says God has created on us from the beginning of time for works, you individually, for some good works. Don't separate these things. There's always a connection between God's grace and what he's, the life he's called us to live. Obedience is the natural response of true faith. There's a... Woman in our church who was willing to share her testimony of how she had moved from a works based system to a grace based system with God. I'm grateful she was able to do it. I resonate with it. I hope you do as well. Take a look at this.
1: My name is Catherine, and I was born a perfectionist. I was born into a deeply religious family. My grandfather was a preacher. My father was an elder for many years in our church. We were the family that put out the communion trays, taught the Sunday school classes. My dad would go and fix the air conditioner um, at the church. We sought very much to show our faith by what we did. There was a period of about 10 years from around the time I became a teenager um, to about the time I got married that anything that was faith-related was simply a checklist. Um, Doing the Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night piece, and that was what my faith was based on. Over the period of several months, um, through reading scripture, I saw myself reflected in many places. Um, One that stood out to me was in the book of Isaiah. There's many places where it mentions uh, that these people come near to me with their mouths, uh, but their hearts are far from me. And the people were carrying on their rituals, but God wasn't pleased. And I recognized in myself that I was doing all the rituals, but my heart wasn't where it needed to be. And so during that time, as I read more and more I was also um, doing some running and uh, a friend at that time had suggested uh, starting to listen to contemporary Christian music while I ran. So I started doing that and one song that really stood out to me was In Christ Alone. I realized God showed me between the scripture and particularly that one song that I was not relying in Christ alone for my salvation. I was relying on my works. The main way it has come is through studying scripture, by meeting with God every day, if possible, Um, to hear from Him, um, to go back and revisit certain parts of the Bible like Galatians or Isaiah or Romans um, or specifically this passage in Ephesians to remind myself um, that Christ is sufficient because of God's grace. My name is Catherine and I am convinced that it is by grace I have been saved Through faith, and this not of myself, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that I
0: cannot boast. What about you? Are you convinced? If you're following on your notes, I close with this question. I make it personal. Have I been saved by grace through faith? Or are you still working? Invite you to put your notes away right now. Uh, Close your eyes. Bow your head. I'd like to lead us in a time of prayer. I'm certain that there's almost a number of things going on in this room right now. Uh, I, I can't speak to all those, but I do want to speak to at least two, uh, two of those things I think God has laid on my heart. First, I, I know for certain that some of you are in this room and you've been Christians for a long time. You know this message, you've memorized this message. But if you're honest, you can still find yourself gravitating towards this works model in your life. You know that you've been saved by God's grace, but you still are trying to justify that salvation with the way you live. If that is you, my question for you is what does your good, good father want to say to you this morning? If your faith has become a burden, if obedience has become an obligation, maybe he wants to say to you this morning, stop trying so much. I already love you. I already accept you. Yes, I've created you for good works, but you're getting the order messed up. Do those things from an identity based in Christ, not as a way to prove your worth to me. Stop comparing yourself to others. Stop seeing success in the way the world sees it and start seeing yourself as I see you. Chosen, adopted, forgiven, healed, secured, redeemed, loved. A new creation. Brand new. Perhaps there are also some in this room who for the first time in your life have understood what this gospel thing is all about, what this grace thing is, and you're ready to receive it as a gift this morning. You want to know how? If that's you, all you have to do this morning is acknowledge your brokenness, acknowledge the sin that keeps you from that radical righteousness, and acknowledge to God that I can't fix it on my own. I've tried, and I've come up short. Say to your good Father, I want to be forgiven. I want to be loved. I want to stop comparing myself to others. I can never be good enough. By faith, I know that. By faith, I surrender. By faith, I commit to the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me in order to save me from my sin, from my pride, from my selfishness, from my hate, all the darkness inside of me. He died so that I might live. Receive your Father's forgiveness this morning. Receive the new life in Christ. If that is something you can pray from a true place of faith in your heart, then know that even now, all the angels in heaven are rejoicing at that decision. Though you were dead, you have been made alive in Christ Jesus. You have been born again. How? It's all God's grace. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, we're going to close by singing the song that churches have sung for generations now. What better way to close than singing about God's amazing grace to us. So why don't we stand and declare these words together.